Our text this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Give you a moment to go there in your Bible or in your electronic device. Again, it's Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked, still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up from, and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm really thankful for the music this morning, but I think we also need to say that was a good job reading all those names and places that Melissa just did. I mean, wow, wow. Slow clap for that. She was like reading them, and I was like, oh, that's how you pronounce that word. That's, that's, that's good. Uh, let me begin with prayer. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the blessing of being together to worship you, to praise you for who you are, for what you have done. Thank you for the gift that we get to do this by joining our voices together, Lord, that we're not isolated as we do this, Lord, but we are with your people. Um, I pray, Lord, that you graciously right now would speak. Lord, as we come to your word, Father, that this would not in any way be about me, be about my thoughts, but it would be about you, about your son, I ask that you graciously would use your Holy Spirit to speak through me so that we all would be shaped and equipped to glorify you and to follow you faithfully. May that take place in your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, uh, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. My name is Joel. I'm one of the elders and pastors at Holy Trinity Church. And as I said last time when I preached, which was just a few weeks ago, if you are newer to HTC, you really may not know who I am and be surprised that I am calling myself a pastor 
Uh, but that's because I used to be up here a lot, and then I kind of took a step back as I'm pursuing my PhD, but I still am on staff, and I'm excited to be here. Now, if you have been around for a little bit, there's a good chance that you've heard me say before that I find the history of the church to be remarkable, to be amazing that we are gathered here today based on events that happened 2,000 years ago. So I'm currently reading a biography of Julius Caesar, and I thought about a few times while I'm reading this biography how crazy it is that just about 300 years after the events that I'm reading about right now, the Roman emperor would come to believe, or at least publicly say, that a Jewish man who was crucified by Rome was the true king, the true savior, and true God of the world. And that's crazy. So in the biography that I'm reading right now, Israel has never been mentioned, and I, I doubt Israel will get mentioned. It's just kind of this nothing place in this massive empire, and yet from Israel would arise the belief that would essentially overthrow Rome's way of life, change the world forever, so that we still, 2,000 years later, are gathered to worship that man, Jesus Christ. I mean, how did this happen? It is a remarkable story. Part of the answer, no doubt, to how this happened has to be that Jesus was just that amazing, that he was just that amazing of a person, and we would say, yes, we would confess that to be true, and that he was not just a man, but that he was God himself who acted in a way differently than any other religion could ever imagine, that he came to earth as a man to bear in his body our sins, our pain, our suffering on himself, that his crucifixion then, yes, at the hands of Rome, was him being crucified as a criminal, but actually it was a sacrifice, and it was the victory of God for us. For he rose again to defeat death. So that part of the answer to how did this happen is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the most significant event in all of history, so of course it changed history. But I don't think it is wrong to see and to say that that answer, only looking at Jesus, is only a partial answer to how did this happen. It doesn't completely explain how we get here today, which is actually why we have the book of Acts. You see, we still need to ask, how do we know about this? Jesus appeared at a specific time in history, only appeared to specific people. And even though his crucifixion was public, his resurrection, wouldn't say necessarily was private, but only a handful of people actually got to see it. So how do we know about it today? How can we still trust in this event today? Well, it's because those who followed him those who were saved by him, those who were forgiven through his work and given the Holy Spirit, continued his work. Not in the same way, of course, but Jesus' followers who were saved by him saw that their salvation was not just for themselves, but was actually a call to mirror their lives after him and be on the move to point others to what Christ had done. And that's what I want to talk to you about today when we look at this text that you just heard Melissa read. And actually, I think this text is pretty important, which may be a little bit strange to hear, because when you read this text, there doesn't really seem like there's that much interesting going on. So yes, there is Paul preaching so long that a guy falls asleep and then falls out of a window and dies, and then Paul brings him back from the dead, which perhaps is meant to be a sign to us preachers that unless you can bring people back from the dead, stop talking so long. <laughs> That may be what that means. But other than that interesting little story, it mostly just seems to be a travel log. In fact, even that interesting story of Paul bringing Eutychus back from the dead may not be too interesting to us at this point because 
We've seen a bunch of miracles already through the book of Acts. Luke's recorded a bunch of these for us, so what's another one? Why tell us another story of God's power being on display? What is the significance of this little text? So unless it may be surprising to hear me say that I'm looking forward to preaching this text, and I think it's important, and it may be very surprising to hear me say that this text shows us that the church, that we are meant to continue the work of Christ. That's because how I want to look at this text today is not in isolation, but rather as part of an overall strategy and argument that Luke, the author, has been orchestrating through both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So here's what I mean. So we sometimes spend all of our time reading the Bible in bits and pieces and not seeing it as connected. But, but, but it is, and especially the individual books. Like any other book, the message of the author is not just found in individual chapters or paragraphs, but through seeing it as a whole, seeing the patterns and the overall shape that the author gave it. And this is definitely true with the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which is really a two-volume work. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts of the Apostles, which is what we're in our series on, is a two-volume work by the same man, whose name, surprise, surprise, is Luke. And he wrote this in a specific genre called a bios, a Greek bios, that often makes its point not through direct sayings like you'd often have when you're reading through the letters, but through repeated trends and patterns that you see arise when you put the whole thing together. This is what Luke does with both of his volumes. Luke, the author, then, is not just describing events, but intentionally ordering and detailing the life of Jesus on the church so as to call on us to understand Jesus in the church in a very specific way. And I want to try to illuminate or unlock a part of that vision today when looking at this text. I want to try and show you that the details of what Luke is doing here, in the details of what he's doing here, why he gives us this travel log, this list of names, this story about Eutychus, it's because it's part of an overall strategy to display the church as that which continues the work of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, I want to call on all of us to take up that mantle. I want to show you that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that while, of course, it's unique in what it accomplishes, as it's only through him that salvation comes, it's only through him that forgiveness is given, only through him that we become children of God, that we're given the Holy Spirit, that while that is true, that Luke displays the church, the recipients of Christ's grace and salvation, as those unleashed into the world to continue and even expand on this work of proclaiming, embodying, and offering that salvation to the world. Now, how I'm going to do this is I'm first going to try to outline three unique elements of Luke's presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, and when I say unique, I don't mean as if they're so unique that you wouldn't find them anywhere else. I'm more unique in his presentation and his emphasis that Luke gives them. And then I want to show you, after I point out those three unique elements, I want to try and show you that we find Luke actually highlighting those in our text. So we have to kind of show this repetition and show that the church is following in this way of life, this way of mission. Okay, because that's, that's often how these things work. There are elements... These elements are part of patterns and trends that Luke is using to push us to follow Jesus Christ. Okay, so the first unique element I want to point out in the Gospel of Luke is the innocence of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. Okay, that Jesus, when suffering, when he died for us, when people rejected him, he was innocent. Now, 
This is obviously in the other Gospels. So there's four Gospels. All four think that he is innocent. John definitely has a unique emphasis on this. But Luke is different in how he talks about this. So much so that when Jesus dies, this is kind of the clearest moment he does this, okay? When Jesus breathes his last. While in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, they explain that a Roman centurion was looking at Jesus dying and that when Jesus died, he confessed, surely this man is the son of God. That something about the way that Jesus died displayed his true identity. Well, that happens in Mark and Matthew. Luke has the same event, but he actually changes what the man says. So Jesus died. He breathes his last. There's a Roman centurion looking on. But he doesn't say, surely this man was the son of God. Instead, he said, surely this man was innocent. Now, he does this not because he does not think that Jesus was the son of God. He definitely does. His gospel displays that. Nor does he do this because he's lying or being non-historical. That would be a claim that's kind of imposing our views on how history has to be written. Really, and how things were like the Gospels were written back then, this kind of public biography, these bios, the writer is not necessarily trying to record things in the exact way that it happened, but rather record them in a way that was truthful, but made a point that displayed who the person really was they're talking about. So you could actually reorder events. We see this happening. The gospel writers will take events and they'll group them differently because they're trying to actually show them together to actually display something to us. You could actually slightly alter what someone's saying, not so you could lie, but you should clarify the point that you're making. That's what Luke did here. He sought to emphasize, not the title at that moment, even though Luke would affirm it, but that when Jesus died, when he was thrown up there on the cross, they were wrong. He was innocent. Jesus suffered innocently. And we'll discuss why this is so important in a moment. But that's the first unique element. It's Jesus' innocence in the midst of his suffering. The second element is the importance of movement or travel to Jesus' mission. Okay, that Luke, more than any other gospel, emphasizes the intentional movement toward Jerusalem where Jesus will be crucified. Essentially, the central part of the gospel constantly brings up that Jesus is going somewhere. Okay, so again, Matthew and Mark, the ones that are most similar to Luke, they do this a little bit, but all of them, they don't say until much later in the gospel that Jesus has to go to Jerusalem to die. Okay, so most of his miracles, most of his teachings he does before he eventually tells his disciples, by the way, I have to go to Jerusalem. I got to go to the capital and I'm going to die there and I'm going to come back from the grave. Okay, so he actually has three different times that he confesses that. And in Matthew and Mark, they're much later and very soon after that, he's in Jerusalem. So it happens But it's a smaller theme within those Gospels. But in Luke, it's almost the opposite. So Jesus' public ministry does not begin until chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. And just five chapters later, so he hasn't really done that much. Five chapters later, very early on in his ministry, he says, you know what, guys? I got to go to Jerusalem, and I got to die. So that almost all of his teachings, almost all of his miracles, take place with this shadow overhanging it. That what his mission is truly about is in Jerusalem. And he has to keep moving there. So that movement is a massive aspect to what it means to fulfill Jesus' ministry. He has to actually be marching forward. He has to be traveling to where God is calling him. Okay, so that's the second unique element. So innocence and then movement. And then the third unique element of Luke is that Jesus' work in miracles is often told in such a way that it resembles the work in miracles of Old Testament prophets. And in particular... Two prophets named Elijah and Elisha 
which is difficult to tell those apart when I say them out loud. And I have a slight lisp, so they can sound very, very similar. But I'll do my best to say that J, Elijah, and Elisha. So actually, one of the interesting things, so this, this great episode that many of us will know about, when Jesus is rejected in his hometown, when he says a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, Luke's telling of this is a lot longer than others. And one of the parts that makes it longer is that Jesus compares his own ministry to Elijah and Elisha. Okay, very early on. This is actually the first public thing that he does in the Gospel of Luke, is say, I'm going to get rejected just like Elijah and Elisha. He kind of throws that out there. And that seems very intentional by Luke, because a lot of the times when he talks about Jesus' miracles, he seems to highlight aspects of the miracles that make you think about miracles that Elijah and Elisha did. One particular story is in Luke 7, 11 through 17, where Jesus heals a widow's son. And if you read that episode and then compare it to 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, you'll see that it's very similar to these miracles that took place before. Almost if Jesus is continuing in this line of these two great prophets who actually succeeded one another. Elijah came first, and then his spirit passed to Elijah, and Elijah took up the mantle of following him. So those are the three unique elements in the Gospel of Luke. There are, of course, others. But they are three elements that relate to our text and I think understand, help us understand, why does Luke give us these 16 verses? Why does he actually give us these details here? Because we actually see these three elements come out in how the church is acting so that Luke is presenting a vision of the church to us as that which looks like Christ, that which continues in his work. So the first element in our text is not that obvious. And admittedly, it's a little bit more in last week's text. But if you look at verse 1 of our text, here's what it says. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So what's that uproar that's being referenced there? Where the uproar that's being referenced is what we looked at last week when Ashanti preached. And if you remember, Ashanti emphasized that this uproar that took place was baseless. Okay, so what happens is this guy named Demetrius had noticed that because Paul and the rest of the church were calling people to follow Jesus Christ, to receive the grace of Jesus, to repent of their sins and give their life to him, Demetrius realized that he was losing money because now people were no longer buying his idols that he was making. They were following the true God, no longer these false gods. And so he started this borderline riot in Ephesus. So people are getting really angry, their economics is kind of being called into question, and they're kind of saying like, hey, they're, they're calling out against Artemis, the god over Ephesus. What is going on here? And so this thing happens. But what is the problem is that they're wrong. The uproar is actually wrong. So Paul was undermining the claim. Paul was speaking in such a way that people weren't buying idols, but not because he was going out there and saying, don't buy idols. He was proclaiming Christ and so people weren't doing it. Paul was undermining the belief that Artemis is great, but not because he was out there being like, hey guys, that Artemis, garbage. Don't do that kind of thing. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ as a true king, as the true God, which if you believe, undermines that Artemis is great. So the church actually was innocent of what was being said, which is what the town clerk claims at the end of that text. And it's how he calms everyone down, basically saying, you have no case. But if you read that episode alongside the trial of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is nailed to a cross, there's so many similarities. And that's intentional. It is in part why Luke emphasizes the innocent suffering of Jesus so strongly in his Gospel. It's not because he doesn't think that Jesus is the Son of God who saved us. He does. 
Luke emphasizes that over and over again, that Jesus is the king. He is our savior. But Luke also wants to show that what Jesus did is a model. It's a pattern that must be followed. And if Jesus is just the son of God, that's difficult for us to model. Because that's not me. If Jesus is just the savior, that's difficult for us to model and follow after. Because we're not the saviors, but if he's innocent. If he is one that actually suffers, not because he actually was trying to do that, but because he was proclaiming the truth. That's something that we can do. That's a model that we can follow after. So yes, Luke is claiming that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the King, but he's also saying he is the one that we must follow. He is the one that we must look like. And well, and that's what Luke is showing us throughout the book of Acts, reminding us in the beginning of our text that the church is meant to continue the work of Jesus Christ, of confronting the world with the reality of the truth of who Jesus is, the reality of his salvation, and endure the consequences that come with that. Endure them innocently. And we need to hear this for us as well. That this is what we are called to do. To be the church means to actually be on this mission. Now, I want to be clear here because I think there's really interesting things about the call for us to seek to do this. And so what Luke is showing us is that the difficulties faced by the church did not come as a result of being intentionally confrontational or intentionally provocative for the sake of it. Okay, so you think back to, to Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr. Okay, he is accused of explicitly speaking out against the temple of Israel. This kind of center to their whole nation and the center to their religion. But what Stephen actually did was show that throughout history, God has always made himself known to his people apart from the temple. This is in the scriptures. And the people should be careful then to reject this way of God making himself known through Jesus Christ. But because his way of actually talking about that undermined their way of thinking about the table, the, the temple, they killed Stephen for it. And he, like Jesus, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Paul does not seem to have explicitly told the people to stop buying idols from Demetrius. He did not explicitly declare that Artemis is not great. What he did, however, was declare the triune God, declare Jesus Christ as the true king, the true God, the one hope and salvation for all things, which, if believed, undermines idols, and Artemis. So Paul was not being intentionally provocative, but he was declaring Jesus Christ as the true and only hope of the world, as the true and only king of the world, and that is a message that will provoke. Guys, we are called to do the same. There's no avoiding this, and this has been really difficult for me as I wrestle with this, because even though I know these things, it's like I, I don't really want to think that so much of my life, or my whole life, is actually wrapped around proclaiming and embodying and bearing witness to Jesus Christ, because that is uncomfortable to think about that. It's much easier to think about us kind of being able to be closed off and saying we just need to protect ourselves. But no, to be the church is actually to do this. We need to get that. There's no avoiding this missional call. Now, I think for most of us, we will probably tend towards one of the extremes. We'll either tend to be intentionally provocative or to avoid conflict or maybe float back and forth between the two ends of the spectrum. Now, I'm not saying there is never a time to use intense language. Jesus certainly did at times. But the habit that I feel like I see often right now, especially on social media, of making fun of those we disagree with, whether to their face or behind their back or through a sarcastic meme or gif, the tendency to be intentionally disrespectful or picking a fight, whether in person or over social media, that's not continuing in the way of Christ. 
And then doing that and complaining that, we're, that you're suffering is not really what Christ actually did. But neither is, what I think is probably the bigger struggle for most of us here, neither is never saying anything about Christ because we want to avoid conflict or awkwardness. I know this is hard. It is hard for me. But guys, we need to be encouraging one another to do this and praying that the Lord would give us the strength to do it, just like the apostles did in Acts 4. For we are called to continue the mission of Christ, to present him, to show what he has done, even if it caused tension and suffering. Yes, the church then is called to continue this mission, to be on the move like Jesus Christ, which is the second element I want to show you here. Because if you look back at that first verse of our text when it talks about Paul leaving Ephesus to go through Macedonia, it's important to remember that the reason he is leaving is not because of the uproar. That would kind of be surprising for Paul. Paul kind of tended to stay around for a lot of those things. He's not on the move because of opposition. He's actually on the move because he, like Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, has set his face to go to Jerusalem. So in Acts 19.21, it explains now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. That's where he is going. Luke reminds us of this at the end of our text, after detailing all the various places they go on the ship from verses 13 through 16, leaving Troas, going to Assos, to Midlin, Chios, and Samos, and then Miletus, and asking for the Ephesian elders to come to him. He's doing all this because, as it says in verse 16, he is hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul is on the move towards Jerusalem just as Jesus. And this is a constant theme throughout Acts. In fact, I think that Luke explained to us that Paul was hoping to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost is meant to remind us of where Acts began, which is in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The book has essentially come full circle at this time. The church has constantly been on the move, and it's not just Paul. It is the whole church. Actually, if you look at the structure of Acts and compare it to Luke, many scholars would argue that they are intentionally structured the same way. But whereas in the Gospel of Luke, the central section is Jesus moving toward Jerusalem in order to die, to accomplish salvation. The central section of Acts is the church's mission from Jerusalem to the rest of the world to declare what took place when Jesus came there. So that Paul, turning now to go back, displays the remarkable journey the church has been on and is still on because he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to keep on going to the capital, to Rome, to declare that there is a different king. Because again, Luke is showing us that the church is continuing the work of Christ. This is not just Paul. It applies to us as well. We are meant to be on the move. This is part of the reason why in that first paragraph of our text, well, we may be tempted to think of it as just like a travel log, like the, sec like the last paragraph as well. That's not entirely true. Okay, because lo look at verses four through six and ask yourself, why does Luke include this list right here? So verses four through six, Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. You see, the focus here, at least in part, is on the companions, the co-workers, the co-laborers, if you remember a few weeks ago, John emphasized so much in the sermon that we are called to kind of actually pour into others, to bring up those who would also go forth and do what we've done. Paul has obviously been doing that. 
He has these disciples who are on the move with him, and they're from all over. They're meant to actually represent all these different churches where Paul has planted so that him going back to Jerusalem is not a problem. Why? Because look who else is on the move. The rest of the church is actually sending people out to declare what Jesus has done. In fact, at the end of our text, it's interesting that Paul calls for the elders of Ephesus rather than go there. But he does that in part because he knows the whole operation doesn't depend on him. He doesn't need to go back to Ephesus because there's people there doing the work. He could go back to Jerusalem because there's others who are doing the work. Because it's the church. It's God's people. All those who know Christ and received his salvation are meant to follow him by being on the move. Because this is one of the reasons why I think we should see our global ministry partners, our missionaries that we partner with, and our work with Neopolis, which is our global church planting arm, as not just a side project, not just this thing that we get updates on every once in a while that maybe John and Sally are interested in. This is a vital aspect of what it means to be the church, to send people out to the nations, to support churches over there who actually are planting and doing God's work. We need to be doing these kinds of things. We should want to hear what they are doing, want to support them, and want to send out more. It's one of the reasons why I'm so thankful to be at this church where John is constantly pushing us to think about what are we doing in the city? People need Jesus Christ, and that's why we are here. It's one of the central things that we should see that's happening here on Sundays. One of the main things that we should be thinking about when we come to church on Sundays is I am here to be equipped to be sent back out. I am actually gathering with my brothers and sisters to be encouraged, to hear God's word, to be reminded of who we are, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us, so that at the end of the service, we can be sent back out into the world to be on the move, to be on mission in your neighborhood, on your block, in your office, at your school, or in your family. We are not meant to gather on Sundays to come to church to escape the world. We come to worship so that we might hear from God, the king of the world who has saved us and sent us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to what he has done, to proclaim what Christ has done, and so to continue his mission. This is what we are all called to do. And guys, we need to take this seriously. I need to take this seriously. I think it's extremely hard right now to do this. I think that's always been true, but COVID, I believe, has made it even more difficult. So I, I think before COVID, we often had difficulties, all of us, I'm not I'm thinking about myself here, which is making sure we're, we're actually bearing witness, speaking to our neighbors with the things, even gathering on Sundays. We had problems with kind of treating Sundays with this kind of like volunteer thing. Maybe you come, maybe you don't. It's not that big of a deal. But COVID has gotten us so used to being at home, so used to being isolated and alone. I think it's a lot harder than before. Now, let me just say, I know there are some very good reasons for some to continue to be isolated or at least more isolated than others. So I'm not, I'm not ignoring that reality. But COVID, I think, has built into us habits of actually not putting ourselves out there, habits of not gathering together. And it's had a huge impact on our church and other churches and just our ability to even run some of the ministries we normally do because we can't get the volunteers that, that we once did, which affects it because we want to be gathering together to be encouraging one another. We're no longer used to giving up our time like that. We're not used to talking to our neighbors or even seeing our coworkers in the flesh. And I feel this so much. So I, I moved to my neighborhood 
in part to get to know people to be on mission. And pretty soon after that, COVID happened. And last summer when all the parks were closed, anytime I want to take my kids to the park, I'm not doing it in the city. I'm not doing it in East Garfield Park. I'm driving to the suburbs. I know it's kind of anathema to say in Holy Trinity, but that's what I was doing. And it, it, but it's a huge deal because I have gotten into the habit of actually not talking to people around me. But it's fine. I can just kind of exist in this neighborhood and not actually be seeking to get to know people and bear witness. But I want to encourage all of us that we are called to be on the move. We are saved, yes, for ourselves, but also for the sake of mission. To serve the church here, to care for one another here, so that we could all be equipped to be sent out and serve the world. Because we are called to continue the work of Christ. And that's what I actually think we see happening in this central section, this center section in the story of Paul raising Eutychus up from the dead in verses 7 through 12. So here we find again this story of Paul speaking. He actually probably wasn't preaching. It was probably a conversation. Just so let's not get all bad. I'm preaching over here, guys. He was probably just having a conversation. He talked for a long time. And this young man, Eutychus, who probably was about 13 or 14, fell asleep and fell out of the window and died. But Paul went down, kind of bent over him, laid on him, and brought him back from the dead. There is no doubt that part of the message Luke is putting forward here concerns the power of God to raise up life. The power of his kingdom come on display. And I want to emphasize that. If, if you're not a follower, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to know that this is what God does. This is what Christ has done. He's given the hope about you when we see the despair in the world, when we see death, that there is something stronger. And if you want that hope, following Jesus Christ gives us that, that one day, death will be no more. That's part of what Luke is doing here, and that's throughout the book of Acts. But this story also, as many have pointed out, is extremely similar to Jesus' healing in Luke chapter 7. And so do the healings that we find done by the great prophets Elijah and Elisha. And we need to think about that. Because who are Elijah and Elisha? Well, Elijah and Elisha are two of the most significant people in history that God used to bear witness to his goodness, to what he was doing in the world. But they were often alone, often rejected. Their lives were ones of always being on the move, always on mission, bearing witness to God and enduring the consequences. But they were also lives of succession. What I mean is that Elijah was older than Elisha. Elijah was the one who was on the move first. And he was alone for so much of his life, at least he felt alone for so much of his life. But later in life, he met Elisha and discipled him and guided him and led him. But one day, God took him. One day, Elijah's work was over and God took him to be with himself. And Elisha witnessed this. But upon witnessing it, he was given the spirit of Elijah. And he, upon receiving it, took up the mantle to continue the work of his great teacher. You see, that's why it's so interesting in our text that this healing done by Paul mirrors Jesus' healings that mirror Elisha and Elijah. Because there are many healings done by the apostles and by Jesus that we don't hear about. But Luke told us this one, in part to display that the work of Christ has not stopped. Because Paul, the church, we are to Jesus as Elisha is to Elijah. Again, not in the same way. But guys, we have been given the spirit of the Lord. 
The spirit that actually sends us out to proclaim what God has done. He has empowered us. He has given life to us. And because of this, we have been sent to continue that mission of offering and proclaiming and embodying the goodness and salvation and glory of our God. We have the privilege then of being on the move like Christ. To tell others that he died and rose again. That he has conquered death and sin. That he is the king. That all lives should bow before him. And receiving his forgiveness, love, mercy, and justice. Join us in seeking to point others to him. We have God's spirit. Who's empowered us to bear witness to that salvation that he's accomplished through Jesus. And so we must seek and reliance on him to continue this work. Knowing, yes, we can't do it fully. But God can. The Spirit can. And listen, I, I know I keep on saying that this is hard. I want to keep on saying, I know it is hard. I know it's scary and kind of probably not what we want to do or even really want to hear. Because we look at what the apostles accomplished and it's easy to think, that's impossible. There's no way that we could do that. Or, or almost to kind of think like, ah, they were naturally this way. That they were naturally bold in that kind of way. Because it just seems supernatural what they did. But that's because that's actually what it was. It was not of their own strength. They were afraid. They didn't know how to do it. I mean, often when you read Acts, you can tell, like, they don't really know what's going on. I mean, when Jesus, when, when God sends Peter to Cornelius, okay, this great conversion moment, Peter arrives and has no idea why he is there. He's like, well, I got a vision. So why'd you send for me? He's not sure. He's confused. And so as I close, I want to say, please, let's not ignore this, mes- this message because we don't want to do it. Because we think it's too hard for ourselves to actually be on mission. Rather, let us come before the Lord and plead with him to give us the strength through his spirit to be bold. To proclaim Christ. To love others. To be on the move. That's what the apostles did in Acts 4. They were afraid. They saw the difficulties before them. They saw that their savior had been crucified. And now they're getting arrested. And they are terrified. And so they come before the Lord and say, Father, please, give us the strength. We don't know how to do it. It was not natural for them to actually confront the world in this kind of way. They needed God. But God listened. He answered their prayer. So may we pray the same. Because we are called to continue to be on the move. To proclaim Christ and endure whatever comes to be empowered by Christ's spirit, to be saved, yes, but also to proclaim Jesus died for you and rose again. He is your king. He is your hope. He is your salvation. May we not just know that for ourselves, but may we be on the move to bear witness to others what Christ has done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died for us. Thank you that he rose again for us. Thank you that he ascended to the throne for us and sent his spirit for us. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would be so assured by what Christ has done, so assured of the salvation he's given to us, that we would bear witness to others, that we would proclaim it to others, that we would offer that salvation to others. Lord, I want to ask that we would not just think this is important, like I feel like I'm tempted to do right now, just to think it's important, but not want to actually do it. May we do it. 
May we be a church that joins with the other churches in Chicago and all over the world in proclaiming there is hope. If a young boy dies, that doesn't need to be the end. There is something more powerful. And he has a name, and it's Jesus Christ. May we know that for ourselves. We tell others. Thank you, Lord, that you've told us. May we be assured of that. In Jesus' name, amen.